Well, hi, everybody. Welcome. Uh, my name is uh, Adam Burden. I'm with Accenture, uh, and I am our chief software engineer. It's actually a new title I've gotten recently, uh, and uh, I think it's probably the coolest title in Accenture, actually. <laughs> I like it. Um, I've been with Accenture for, uh, for 27 years, and uh, I run uh, a group called um, our engineering services practice, so that's all of our custom development, um, all of our kind of emerging technology areas like um, uh, blockchain, uh, data-driven uh, pr practices, analytics. Um, it also includes uh, uh, groups that are doing software architecture, of course. Uh, so it's a pretty big part of our, of our business. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we also do in there is platform engineering work, uh, which is uh, what uh, we're going to be talking about today. And uh, it's something that we see a lot of clients uh, of Accenture uh, expressing a great deal of interest uh, in uh, as, as they look to evolve their businesses to become more digital enterprises. Um, during the course of the discussion, I'm going to be joined by Tani Krefeld. Uh, Tani uh, is, uh, is one of our uh, practitioners out in the line, uh, and uh, she's going to share with you and kind of bring to life uh, the example of becoming a more platform business. Um, uh, as, a, as one of the examples from a TV industry. Uh, and it's a project we've recently completed and it's got you know, quite a bit of, of interesting results from it that I think will be very educational for the folks here. So with that, let's go ahead and, and, uh, and just get started. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that uh, uh, inspires a lot of our clients um, to engage with uh, Accenture is they're looking at uh, where their next um, era of business growth is going to come from. And they also are in a difficult spot as well. Uh, they see that they have um, uh, technology change happening around them uh, at uh, an unbelievable pace. Uh, in fact, one of the things that, that I uh, like to say about that uh, type of challenge or scenario that they're in uh, is that they have, uh, that we'll actually never see uh, the pace of technology change as slow again as it is today. Now, that's a pretty daunting thing for any of them um, to absorb, uh, and they're looking for ways uh, in which they can um, maybe ride some of those technology waves uh, rather than uh, you know, be uh, taken over by them, uh, rather. And it's never been, it's really never been uh, easier for a um, competitor or a, an adjacent uh, business, perhaps in another industry, uh, to be able to introduce a product or service for Accenture's clients uh, that could really disrupt them. Uh, we actually see this happen quite a bit um, because of what we call the democratization of technology, and it's actually one of the great things that, um, that uh, cloud service providers, cloud platforms like AWS, uh, have actually made happen for us uh, in, in the industry, and uh, probably for many of you in the room, you've seen this uh, around you, where you know, a disruptive entity can come into a well-established business that may be decades or even 100 years old uh, and very quickly actually disrupt them. And that because they have access to um, a reasonably costed uh, cloud service, um, compute services, low-cost storage, uh, and network, it's much easier than it ever has been before uh, for them to actually introduce new products and services that perhaps would have been you know, the territory or domain of much larger enterprises exclusively in the past. 
Um, so they're looking, these, these enterprises are looking to say, well, how do we, how do we actually thrive in this period of constant change? Uh, and the difficult complexity is around us with all these uh, changes that are happening. How do we actually thrive in that period? Uh, and our advice to them is, you know, first of all, you can't take your eye off the ball of your core business. Um, that is the, you know, the heart of your profits and others. It's the thing that's going to keep your business afloat. Um, so what you need to do is, is to strike a balance uh, between transforming the core uh, and what we call pivoting to the new. Now we're being very, very, uh, we're really kind of, kind of distilling this down into a couple of key points, but when we're developing a strategy for a client who's struggling in this, in this environment, and believe me, many of the larger enterprises in the world encounter uh, the, these types of difficulties every day, uh, it really kind of uh, boils down to kind of these two areas of transforming the core and pivoting the new. And when they're transforming the core, it's not just about you know, transforming the core of their infrastructure or their network core or other things. It's actually looking at the core of their business. How do they make it actually more agile? And that might actually in be introducing new ways of working. Um, it might be doing things um, which are uh, implementing uh, new ways of cost avoidance. And I'm going to give you uh, some examples of how we do that uh, in a few minutes. But it's all about how do we, how do we maximize the profits from, this, uh, from our core business and how do we continue to drive the revenue and the growth out of it, uh, achieve cost avoidance, uh, cost of serve reductions, et cetera? How do we do those things? And at the same time, we are uh, becoming a more data-driven business. Uh, we're using uh, information in new ways to actually guide our business, uh, and we're driving and propelling new areas of growth from it as a result. Uh, and that's the part of pivoting, uh, pivoting to the new. Now, we see a lot of friction happen um, between these two things, and sometimes they actually conflict with each other. Uh, and I'll be honest, even in a, in a company like, like Accenture, you know, we even have this happen to ourselves a little bit where we're starting up a new area or a new practice of our business, um, and it starts to have some friction with another area of a business. It's almost like we're cannibalizing uh, the business. But the, the, the truth is, is that if you are uh, going to be a business who's going to survive and thrive into tomorrow, you can't approach those kind of scenarios with fear. You can't be afraid that your new product line is going to cannibalize your old product line. Uh, you have to be thinking about how you're going to do that in balance with each other. And that's exactly what we mean uh, by this, you know, uh, doing pivot to the new at the same time you're transforming the core and being able to strike the light, right balance with that. So let's take a look maybe um, about what we mean exactly by transforming the core and how you go about uh, doing this. Uh, and this is a great way where we can really kind of bring in the elements of, of, uh, of AWS and how AWS enables our clients to achieve these types of things. So obviously one of the things is around total cost of ownership. Um, this is a tried and true technique. You know, how do we move a lot of the uh, uh, infrastructure perhaps that a client has um, that is uh, costing them quite a bit of money into cloud. So we're migrating, you know, using uh, migration tools and techniques to actually migrate servers there. But it doesn't end there. If, if all I'm looking at um, is the cloud era, uh, the, the cloud environment as a lower cost data center, um, you're kind of missing the point. 
um, you are missing out on some of the opportunities that are available for you. Even if you're not going to go in and actually do major surgery on the application itself and maybe make it a more elastic application or turn it into some multi-tenant thing that you don't currently have because, again, you're trying to reduce the cost and optimize what's there, um, you still can do a lot because the cloud platform that you're on and the AWS services that are at your disposal will allow you to continue to drive down that cost and actually even create a bit more of a nimble enterprise. You know, think about the ability you know, to uh, automate a lot of your infrastructure deployments um, or uh, think about the ability that you might have um, to uh, to do uh, uh, other things inside of your of your uh, infrastructure layer, uh, which you know might deploy test environments or other things much more rapidly than you've been able to do it in the past, because it's all available to you as a service. Uh, and by the way, I'm giving you some hints about how do you take this, how do you create a business case almost about doing this as well. Now, the second area of, of transforming the core is all about reducing. Uh, your cost to serve, uh, and uh, here absolutely infrastructure is code and doing a heck of a lot of automation inside of your uh, deployment activities, your infrastructure management activities can give you a ton of benefit from that. Uh, and then of course you've got you know, things like revenue cost avoidance, um, which are giving you, um, you know, almost a, a kind of a, a very differentiated way uh, of, of reducing costs that weren't avail available to you on a previous, in previous environments. In fact, I'll give you an example here of, of, of this, which was quite good. So in the, if you look at the compliance side of things, this is actually a very expensive part of business operations for a number of our uh, clients that we work with. Um, where they're having to perhaps audit certain things, you know, that uh, let's say in, in the case of banking, like know your customer activities um, or uh, any money laundering practices. These are big, expensive uh, functions to run in your enterprise. The more you can do to kind of take those out of manual processes and automate that, the better off uh, you're actually going to be. Uh, and in fact, in the compliance processes for this, well, one of the things that we did when we migrated um, a, a good deal of the infrastructure uh, with, with Capital One uh, working on this is that we were able to actually automate a lot of the compliance processes they were running uh, simply by instrumenting a lot of the infrastructure as code and the deployment processes uh, to satisfy some of the audit requirements that were there. So that saved them a lot of money. And when you're looking at transforming the core, all of these things together, reducing the cost to serve, achieving revenue cost avoidance, driving down some of the total cost of ownership, it's giving you those cost savings so that you can actually free up investment dollars to be able to pivot to the new. Um, and here what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, embrace the adoption um, of new ways of working, uh, using cloud in different ways. And the, and the real thing to, to kind of keep in mind here is that the difference here is a lot of times this is greenfield stuff. Right? So we're actually building brand new things, brand new products and services uh, on AWS uh, cloud. Uh, and we're trying to do it in very different ways than before. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult process sometimes though, because a lot of times the business practices that are already in place, the way software development is done, um, the culture that's in place, um, the, the difference between dev and ops, as you guys, uh, many of the folks in here, I'm sure know very well, they actually are significant handicaps to being able to truly pivot to the new and kind of embrace new, uh, the ability to do things in very different ways. Um, I'll give you a good, a good example. Um, we were working uh, with, a, with a bank, and by the way, I'm actually from, from Singapore, working at a bank in Singapore. 
Uh, and uh, one of the first projects that they ever did that was cloud-enabled um, or, or cloud, a cloud-native application, um, the way that we constructed that particular application um, and the way that we uh, went about building it uh, was completely you know, full agile development, uh, full, fully automated DevOps pipeline, and we wanted to be able to push um, a lot of the application changes that happened directly into production out of our DevOps pipeline. Well, <clears throat> you would have thought we'd committed heresy even suggesting that uh, as, as an approach to some of the bank who had these very established processes, a highly conservative uh, type of environment. And it wasn't until we kind of stepped back from that and started to explain to them, you know, how you can use patterns like uh, site reliability engineering uh, approaches and others to actually create a level of resiliency that they'd never engineered into their software previously, that it's actually okay. We can actually have degraded services. Now, when you're talking about somebody making deposits or things like that, they get a bit more antsy about it. But when you're sharing information back out um, and you're con giving a, a consistent customer experience, it's actually okay. And it allows people to kind of get over some of those cultural hump, um, some of those workforce challenges that they run in in the past. Um, so I'm, I'm sharing this with you because it is a significant issue to not to just you know, say, oh, pivot to the new and start using all these new things. You have an inertia issue with a lot of uh, environments where you have to go in and really help them understand how it is and how it's okay to begin to embrace things and doing different, uh, in, in different ways. Um, and I'll, I'll just close on this and talk a little bit about where many of our organizations that we work with aspire to go to over time, and that's to be much more data-driven. If you've instrumented your systems in the right way, if you've taken advantage of the facilities available to you, um, uh, available to you on uh, AWS or other uh, architectures to start collecting data in new and different ways, you can begin to actually use that and become much more of a data-driven business. Um, so instead of you know, uh, trying to forecast um, where things are heading, you can actually use real metrics and real results about how your customers, um, how your employees, how your business partners are using your systems and applications to make them run much better and more efficiently as well as predict the future as well. And that's what we want. That's what we're trying to achieve when we're pivoting the new. We're trying to make these businesses much more um, digitally enabled so that they can work in much faster and more efficient ways uh, and always be ahead of their competitors. So this is what we do when we bring that together. We're reinvigorating these organizations through platforms. Now, I'll tell you, I'll be honest, a lot of our clients, um, they aspire to be what's called a platform business. Um, and, you know, so platform businesses, you know, they, they kind of want to be the, the, you know, the Uber of whatever. And uh, this is a pretty, it's, it's actually, for many of them, I think they, they resign themselves to the fact that perhaps they'll join a platform and that'll be a good thing for them. But they also aspire to, you know, kind of create network effect or use distribution power law, enter entirely new economies uh, through this type of model. And as they're pivoting the new and transforming their core, that's how they want to really scale and grow their business. Now, part of the, the 
recipe for doing that is leveraging a platform itself to actually build their future uh, business on. So by you know, trying to become a platform, they're leveraging a platform actually in doing exactly that. And that's what we're, we're getting at here with being able to reinvigorate an organization to be able to drive new areas of growth and unexpected areas of growth by becoming exactly that, a, a platform-enabled business, but using a platform to do it. Um, so it gives them great um, possibilities, though, to be much more adaptive uh, to changing markets, to catapult their, their workforce um, into entirely new ways of working. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that, that uh, we've been able to, I think, uh, embrace over time is that it's very possible, you know, to do things like like DevOps um, uh, using waterfall develop software development techniques, for those that are still familiar with that. Um, but you actually can't really do Agile without DevOps, and we may have a philosophical de debate about that later on, but we've got a Q&A time to allow that. But the truth is, is that um, unless you start to provide some of those services, and a lot of these, again, are enabled, you you know, directly on these platforms, um, it's very difficult for your organizations to begin to um, embrace or really uh, get into some of these new ways of working. And of course, as you're doing that, you're taking advantage of new levels of global responsiveness because you can actually connect in different ways and you're minimizing a lot of barriers to innovation. And that's the last thing I really wanna, wanted to hit on on this is that as you're um, uh, working on these platforms, um, you know, we have uh, a client that I'm working with in the, in the Middle East. Um, uh, it's a, a big telecom there. And they're starting to look at using virtual agent technology um, to uh, change the way that they interact with their customers. And, and this isn't just some simple virtual agent solution. You know, it's something where we're actually training the natural language processing model uh, to understand different Arabic dialects uh, and others. They would have no ability to do some of the most the advanced things that they're doing unless they had actually taken advantage of moving some of their systems onto, um, in this case, AWS as well, onto AWS because now they have native access um, to uh, yes, the you know, things like Poly and others which are giving them incredible advances um, that they wouldn't have had in their older data center. Uh, and because it's, it's there and it's easy to tap into, you know, they're using it almost as a platform for innovation. So it's inspiring and kind of creating you know, new ideas and new thoughts in their organization that one other have they wouldn't otherwise have. And that's what we're trying to, to, to get at here about how organizations, you know, it's not just about pivoting to the new, is that when they've actually done that, they're actually reinvigorating the company itself and driving entirely new areas of growth. So I'll just close on, on, on this, and I'm gonna invite Tawny up here in just a second, uh, about what it means uh, you know, when we're talking about uh, doing platform-led uh, business transformation. You can you know, see some of the things that are involved here. This is relevant really in any industry uh, that, that we work with. Um, but it's really about kind of inventing, reinventing yourself uh, in a way and kind of thinking about how you serve your customers differently. And we're in, you know, incredibly proud you know, of some of the things that we've accomplished uh, in this space. And the one that I really, that I really admire uh, is for a utility uh, that, we, that we worked with uh, not, not in the not too distant past, where 
we did. We helped them tremendously in transforming their core and reducing the costs of operating their legacy, you know, customer billing systems and others. And they took the savings from that and they took and they drove it into pivoting to the new. They embraced new ways of working. Um, they uh, were using cloud native uh, development, uh, and we we actually were starting to look at what types of innovative things can they do in their enterprise that were actually totally different. And it's actually one of my favorite kind of combination of pivot to the new and cost savings uh, stories that, that, we've, that we've seen. You know, they actually had a set of infrastructure driving something called an OMS. Who knows here what an OMS, by the way, is? Does anybody know what an OMS is in utility? We got one person? All right. <laughs> uh, it's an outage management system. So you know when you have, like, your, when your uh, electricity goes out and you um, have to, yeah, well, Sometimes your landline phone, if, you, if anybody here still has one, would work and you'd be able to call them. Well, most people go on their mobile phone and actually submit an outage request. Um, this is the system that actually handles that. So normally that type of system, not so busy, right? You might get, you know, if you're a relatively good size utility, like you got several million customers as this one did, you know, you might have at any given time, Oh, six, eight thousand outages across your service territory on a busy day would be something like that. But you get a storm come through. You get a storm come through, you have serious issues. You might get a million or two million customers out all at once. Uh, and it actually becomes an extremely busy period. Now, for this particular utility, what they had done is they had actually um, built in their own data center the infrastructure and the software and everything else that they need to be able to handle basically a million customers, a million and a half customers all being out at once and pretty much all telling them at once that, hey, we're out. So they had these incredibly erratic service demands that went in there. They spent $2 million a year maintaining the infrastructure alone for this. The storage layers, the backup and you know, fault tolerance and other pieces um, that were put into place for this. $2 million a year. So we looked at that and said, first of all, we can't move this to cloud. Not possible. We probably could have, but not possible. It doesn't make sense. We actually rewrote major parts, most all of their OMS, in about a 12-week project. And when we finished that, we put it up on, uh, on AWS, put it live into production. You know how much that OMS instance costs them a year? $11. Okay, it was on Lambda. Cost them $11 a year for the thing. Think about the difference in cost savings and what it is that they've achieved out of that. Now, that, when I, you won't run into those kind of examples every single day, but if you're talking about a business that's really trying to reinvent itself, they're trying to pivot to the new and they're trying to transform their core, that's the type of inspiration and change that you wanna see. Now, to really bring this to life, and uh, one of the things, the, this is a recently completed project, the one I just shared with you we did uh, maybe a year or so ago, uh, Tawny Crefeld is gonna come up and talk about how this happens in a TV industry. Tawny, come on up. Thank you. <laughs> I almost walked off with it. <laughs> um, yeah, so, the, um, so, Tawny Krefeld, Managing Director in our Communications, Media, and High Tech Practice, and I'm going to give you a little uh, overview of our Open AP project, which, uh, as Adam said, was part of the, um, trying to change the um, broadcast television, uh, kind of the landscape there. So, um, 
broadcast television advertising has typically been done just based on age and gender demographics, and that's it. So, you know, I like to say, what does uh, Sarah Palin and um, Angelina Jolie have in common? Nothing, but they're in the same television demographic, right? So, you know, if you're trying to, you know, and then there's the rise of digital advertising, and it is so much more targeted, they know exactly who you are, the broadcast TV had to start competing against that. And so they put in a bunch of analytics inside their own systems to try to um, find ways of targeting customers better. But that, what they call advanced advertising or targeted advertising, that targeted advertising process was very slow and very manual, and in the digital advertising, it's much more automated. So they needed to compete both from an automation standpoint um, as well as just getting more targeted. So um, the consortium, so there was a consortium founded of uh, Fox by Common Turner, as you can see there, and they got together and they said, hey, let's get together and let's um, find a way of standardizing and removing some of the friction, or the friction from this process um, so that we can better together compete against digital. So um, they wanted to create a cloud-based platform, be a platform business, and that platform is really gonna be a marketplace between the advertisers and agencies and the broadcasters. Um, at the beginning, it was only just Fox by a common Turner, but it was intended to be an open marketplace. Um, and since um, we did, we have gone live with it. But since we went live, um, NBCU and Univision has all have also joined uh, the consortium. So it is becoming more of that marketplace. Um, so, okay, so great, they wanted to do this. What does that mean? Let's see if I can move this forward. Um, the good thing about the consortium, they were very smart in that um, they, they wanted to have a minimal viable product. How many times have we heard minimal viable product and then they start boiling the ocean, right? Every time, right? These guys actually had a very specific criteria for what they wanted to address in their minimal viable product and they kept to it, which was the only thing that allowed us to, um, to launch on time. Um, and part of the reason that they wanted to have an, a minimal viable product and, and, and have it be somewhat targeted was that they wanted to launch um, on October 1st, which kind of lines up with their uh, broadcast industry timelines. Um, and so they said, we're going live on October 1st. This is what we're gonna do. Um, and by the way, that gave us five months to do it. So we'll go into that in a second. Um, but they did three things. Number one, build a segment. Um, share a segment, and then um, verify the post. Those are the sort of the top three things there. And so what that means in sort of, you know, people who aren't in advertising, what that means is, um, like if I want to build a segment and I want to say, hey, I want to target my advertising for veterans of a certain age over a certain salary who, you know, maybe have recently gone on a trip, something, whatever, right? That's who the people that they think might buy the truck or might buy whatever. Um, but you can use the platform to, with a bunch of different data sources that we've got in the platform, to create that, that targeted segment, right? So an advertiser would say, hey, I want my veterans to go buy my trucks, so I want this segment. Second thing is share a segment. The advertisers or agencies can, you know, create that, that, that segment, which I kind of think of as a little common communication, right? It's their, the, the method of communication and it's very, very solid then they can share it to all the broadcasters. So, you know, now there's five on, on the platform. They can share that same uh, segment 
to all five of the um, broadcasters, and they have a, a common language that they can, you know, then each of those broadcasters then says, okay, these are, this is the shows, this is the inventory that I'm gonna use to target your veterans. And then the agencies can start seeing, oh, well, Fox is good at this, and you know, Turner's good at that, but it just sort of helps that, that language, um, and so that's the sharing. And then the last one is verifying the post. Um, previous to OpenAP, what was happening was, um, you know, an advertiser would work directly with Fox, for example, and say, hey, I wanna you know, target my veterans. They say, great, here's your shows. There's some sort of guarantee in there. And then Fox afterwards would say, great, I, I, I hit all those eyeballs you wanted me to. Good job, me. And the advertiser had no way of verifying that. You know? So you know, it was the, the consortium used the term, you're, you're verifying your own homework. And that's, the, the, the advertisers wanted a third party neutral way of validating that. So the platform takes the sort of the inventory of the shows where the advertising was run and then um, kind of bounces it against all the data and analytics and kind of creates a post report that shows, you know, what's the total reach that you got matching your demographic. Did you really hit all those veterans or not? Um, so those are the three things that we had to create um, as part of the platform for our minimal viable product. So, five months. Why five months? Well, it was just sort of when they finally got there, decided what they wanted to do. October 1st was looming and that's what they wanted to do. So we had five months to be able to get this launched um, and what that meant was, uh, you know, number one, um, we had to uh, create, you know, a, a, a custom UI because there's nothing like this in the industry. It's, it's new, right? Uh, it's kind of a platform business for that. So uh, we needed to create custom UIs. We needed to create all the APIs you know, internal to the platform, but they also wanted uh, the APIs to be externalized so that the agencies or other broadcasters could, you know, could access some of the capabilities of the function. Um, uh, security was, was huge. They wanted, because of the fact that this is a marketplace where you've got all these different agencies and all of these different broadcasters, you never want Fox to see Turner data. You never want, you know, uh, the agency representing McDonald's to see the agency representing Burger King's data. Like, it had to be very, very partitioned and secure, and so security was woven in right into the architecture all throughout it. Um, and then this thing had to be ready to run, right? When this thing went live on October 1st and the consortium was gonna make their big announcement of hey, it's live and you know, come join it, it had to be running. So it had to, we had to have all the monitoring, all the alarming, it had to be ready to perform, stable, all of that stuff. Um, you know, and if it isn't totally obvious by now, the only way we could have done it is by leveraging a lot of the capabilities that, that, that AWS um, gives us. Like we were able to, you know, as soon as we had at least sort of the mock-ups and the idea of what we needed to have for the, for the UI, you know, the, the wireframes and all that, we were able to basically just jump straight into development. We had our uh, development environment up. We were going into, you know, we had not just DevOps, we had DevSecOps. So we had our security woven right into our DevOps pipeline. Um, we were able to do, you know, automated testing and do our, our integration testing as soon as we got, you know, sort of two connections of the APIs. Um, we were doing all of that, that automated. Um, 
and we, we leveraged a bunch of the different capabilities of AWS. You know, we had, you know, AWS Gateway, um, uh, Elastic, um, I just lost the word, Elastic Search, Elastic something, uh, S3, Redshift, just a ton of the different things uh, all built in there, which, and some of them we didn't even know we needed until we hit a problem and the only way we could solve it was, you know, leveraging another a capability from, from AWS. Um, but because of the, the speed with which we were able to get started, we were able to, to, to get it all done. Now, just as a, as a quick point, I don't recommend five months as a baseline for starting your, your platform business. It's not my recommendation. Um, but we were able to sort of meet the consortium's deadline um, because of a lot of the capabilities that we were able to, to leverage from AWS. We actually launched two days early, I'm just saying. Um, um, so, and then, you know, and then since then, of course, the cool thing is we have been able to continue for, they've done a couple of, or we've done a couple of different feature releases. Um, and then, um, you know, this is, again, this was just an MVP. Um, and so they wanted, um, they're going to kind of continue moving towards a more automated you know, purchasing, because there's a lot of stuff you see that from the previous slide that there was a lot of the capabilities that were kind of below the line that we weren't able to do in the initial release. Um, so we're going to continue doing that as we go forward and, and build it more into that automated platform again to compete with, with digital. Um, the other thing I think that really helped us here, kind of to Adam's point in terms of pivoting to the new, like these guys, it was a consortium, right? And what that means is it's like a legal document on a piece of paper. There was no infrastructure. There was no, there's no legacy anything, right? We had nothing. Um, and so this really was a platform kind of out of thin air or out of the cloud. Um, but it helped us in a way because we weren't tied to, um, you know, the ops guys saying this or whatever. We were able to sort of, oops, sorry. We were able to say what are, um, you know, best practices and what we recommended should be done. And we were able to drive a lot of things the way we wanted to because we were able to do it actually in an Accenture location um, and leveraging all the cloud and just kind of did it our own way, which I think is not a, um, a situation that we often find ourselves in as consultants, um, but which in this case was really um, huge to enable us to, to, to get the speed that we needed to get it launched for the consortium. I guess we can take any questions. Cool. Questions? Yes. Did you have uh, any lessons learned out of the Yeah, there's a mic over. over yeah. I forgot about mics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, given the fact that uh, it was such an accelerated timeline and you were able to uh, you know, achieve the final goal and the deadline, um, what were some lessons learned uh, over that time frame? Yeah, it's a great question. It was kind of all a blur, but I guess the, the um, things I think that really enabled us to be effective were, um, you know, number one, in everything that we did, we made sure we did the hardest parts first. And, um, and I've heard some people as they go into Agile, they sort of start small and then kind of build up. We did the hardest parts first, and that way we knew um, you know, kind of how much time left we had. Um, number two, we were sort of always looking the next step ahead. So we had our, you know, we were trying to figure out our, our alarming and our monitoring when we were still in, in, you know, 
just in a couple sprints in Endev. Um, and then I think the other thing is we, we, we made sure we took the time to do things properly. Like I said, we, we wove security right into the architecture. We did all of that automated testing and stuff right up front. Lots of times on programs, you'll, you sort of just get development and you're like, I'll get to the automating that later. I'll, I'll automate it later. But it, it just, it makes it so much better when you're, when you're, when you can just sort of you know kick off your your test cycle and get that done and not have to worry about it. So I think we did a lot of things, you know, we took the time to do things the right way so that we could really speed up the overall process. Um, and I think that was probably my biggest lesson learned there. So I'll add two things. Like in the project accelerated timeline projects like this, uh, I find that there's two key ingredients uh, for for success. Uh, that uh, you know, kind of seem like they're common threads here. One is um, for a project like this, especially where the, the use of the platform's new, um, getting some help from AWS himself um, and having AWS professional services is actually a really good thing. Uh, they will help you make sure that the products are used in the right way. They can be an effective channel into support when you really uh, do need or find something that's not quite working the way you expect it to. Often it's working correctly, it's just not working the way you expect it to. Um, and uh, they're actually, it's, it's actually a very valuable uh, part, part of that. Uh, and you know, as, uh, as Accenture, we, you know, we're humble enough to know that having you know, AWS working with us and a client uh, is a great way um, to solve some of those problems and it works really well. So that's one thing. Uh, that is, uh, that's really important. The other is, um, is to uh, instrument everything. Um, uh, debugging this type of, of architecture and platform uh, is really hard, and you, you, you would, you, you're always constantly amazed about um, the value of the data that you can collect off of these platforms. Um, they can help you tremendously if something's not working correctly, but also to provide um, you know, like the data-driven insights I was talking about earlier. So uh, instrument everything and use AWS uh, ProServe along with you to help deliver these projects, I think, are a couple of key ingredients I've seen. All right, anyone else? Got one more? Okay. In, in uh, the post-verification stage, what method or tools did you use to get feedback from, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So what we did was, so the, the, the broadcasters themselves would provide a report, which really just says, here's the inventory of the shows or whatever that, the, the, um, that they did the advertising on. And then we would take that into the platform. And um, there's different data sources that are used. There's actually Nielsen data, Comscore data, so it's, you know, you guys have all heard of like Nielsen TV ratings. It's that kind of data that we're, we're using in the platform as the analytics engine. And so, um, you know, they'd say, hey, you saw all these shows, and Nielsen is basically saying, hey, you know, X amount of veterans watched that show or whatever. So that's really where that, that kind of data connection comes from. Is, was the Nielsen data, is, does it integrate directly with your AWS workflow, it's, or, it's, um, it or is, do you have to import it? it, it um, we, there's an agreement with them and all that, so it, it's, we have APIs and it's ingested and it's okay. part of the, it's basically part of our, our platform. So like when you're creating a targeted advertising segment, you're actually leveraging all the different data um, types that, that Nielsen provides, mm -hmm. or there's another uh, data provider, Comscore, you can use all of their stuff too. So like Polk Auto, Auto is in there, so it depends on what, um, 
data source you're choosing, but then we use that same data source to validate, did, you, you know, did they hit that um, advertising, did they hit that reach or not? Okay. Thank you. Cool, thanks. Anyone else? Yeah, just uh, one quick one. Sure. So with it being a new platform, short timeline, uh, how did you look at kind of ramping team size? So, you know, how big was the team and were there considerations about, you know, speed versus growth of that number of heads there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we, I think, you know, I, I kind of bucketed into a couple of different areas, right? You had, I had kind of what I thought of as the functional team, which was the UI, the API, and the analytics, like that layer of it. And then there was really the, the technical team, which was putting together more of like the, you know, the AWS and the security and the infrastructure and how that all ties together. And so, you know, I just, I put on, you know, strong leads on each of those areas. And um, we tried to keep the team pretty small. It was probably, I don't know, 20, 25 onshore, something like that, and about 15, 20 offshore. I don't know the exact numbers, but something like that. So we tried to keep it small. Um, and then I just had my fingers on ev everything and everyone, and you know, it just, we just kind of managed it that way. And then there were times when I would say, okay, well, we're not really scheduled to bring on the training person until this date, but I just knew it needed to be done, and I'd just, I'd just make sort of game time decisions and, and bring people on as needed. And, um, it worked, so I don't know. It, I don't. I don't. I, you know. I just. It's a lot of gut feel and kind of knowing what's. You know. We we really did. Um, you know. I, I think well, honestly, back to your question, one of the other things I think that we had more than anything else was we just had sort of blind faith that we could make it work. Like we knew it had to be done by that day. Like there was no. It has all been publicly announced ahead of time. Like it was publicly announced ahead of time that we were doing this for the consortium. We actually had at the four-month point, we had a, um, a, a beta day at a Paramount Studios in Los Angeles where they brought in all the industry experts to do a hands-on demo and touch and feel. And like, so even the five months was like forever away. We were really looking at the four months. And so, but there was just like a blind faith that we could get this done. And so, you know, I had a lot of support from my leadership that if I just needed somebody else, I just grabbed him and brought him on. So we don't always have that luxury, but I did in this case. I seem to remember some escalations yeah. to my team to get a few extra people. <laughs> yeah. What was the overall size of the team and the makeup? That yeah, around like 25-ish onshore and 20-ish offshore, something like that. Um, we were all located in New York City, mostly co-located. Um, again, that, you know, and that's probably another lesson learned is just really, as much as we love to say that we can all work as well in a virtual world as, as not, really having everybody co-located to the extent possible was, was really valuable. I, I think that's a key thing. For starting up a new platform, I think to get, once you get to maybe MVP plus two or three releases, you know, then uh, moving to maybe a more distributed team structure works better, but you're absolutely right. Having the team together for those first couple of releases is super that's important. Huge. Good, another one. Yeah, um, how does the consortium measure the success of the platform? And, and do you have any ownership in that, in the success over, overall? <laughs> it's a great question, um, and I'm not gonna give you a satisfactory answer, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, so, 
number one, so the, one of the consortium's um, goals was to get additional broadcasters on, and that was successful. I, I said we've got NBCU and, and Univision on, and they're, they're talking to other, other uh, broadcasters so that it can, again, become that marketplace. So that was kind of one measure of success. Their other measure of success, success really, which is the only one that really matters, is how much targeted advertising and, and that kind of advertising revenue is flowing to them because of this platform. And that's something that we, Accenture, ugh, sorry, we, we don't have visibility to that. That's something that they kind of own themselves. Um, and there's a lot of sort of lines where, you know, we have all this data in our system and, and we won't, there's things that, they, you know, they pay us to not give them access to it, right? So that we never, so that Turner never knows how many um, segments Fox is working on or whatever. So, so we, we stay a little bit um, neutral and blind on that stuff. Um, you know, so for us, the biggest um, kind of success is really, is it, you know, is it being used? Are there advertising agencies on it that are using it? And we do have those kinds of numbers, um, but how it translates in terms of dollars and all that stuff, we definitely don't have that information. So, but, you know. And they wouldn't want us to have it. And either. they wouldn't, so want, they wouldn't, us wouldn't to. want us They wouldn't no. want us to have it. Excellent. Anyone else? Got one more? Okay. Um, so you mentioned that this was a, I think you said Greenfield, brand new thing. If you were considering uh, trying to change an existing um, piece of software or, or something like that, would you consider approaching it in the same way, only writing it differently, or, or what sorts of things might you consider if you if you want even consider that? If I, can I say could probably wanna, take yeah. that one, yeah. So um, that's, uh, that's, that's a, a, probably a question that happens more frequently mm -hmm. than the Greenfield mm -hmm. scenario. Uh, and uh, it, it's a, hmm. The best way to answer that question is you have to understand uh, the legacy application really well. Right, and can it actually be moved into this target environment and really become you know, something that can take advantage of that platform? And if you remember the example I was giving about the, um, the outage management system, uh, the reason we said that we couldn't move that particular ap application is because it had a, a lot of um, underlying uh, communications that were, that were dependent upon like C libraries that interface directly with the hardware you're not gonna get that kind of stuff on AWS, right? Instead, you know, you're using um, you know, simple messaging services and other things to be able to accomplish some of the things that this did natively on the hardware. So understanding the application really well is important. Um, I also would tell you, you know, you gotta know like what operating system dependencies you might have and the language, of course, that you're on. Um, there is a, there's a philosophy that I've kind of embraced over time, and this is a cloud migration philosophy of moving applications into there. And uh, you'll hear people talk about lift and shift. Um, I've, been, I've, probably, I've probably overseen movement of, I don't know, 30,000 applications now in a cloud somewhere like that. Uh, I've yet to see one that doesn't require some type of change when you move it. So I don't think there is such a thing as lift and shift. If somebody can tell me that there is and I'm wrong, I'd love to, I'd love to understand <laughs> what you've been able to do. So you're always gonna uh, find yourself having to make some changes. But in some cases, you, you really, um, it's, it's minimal and it's pretty easy to get done. 
Um, the, uh, you know, the truth is, though, if you want to do something like what Tani's uh, describing here, where you're really taking advantage of cloud-native services, uh, you're, you're going to use you know, things like Lambda, Aurora, and other pieces, you're talking about doing major surgery on an application. And you really kind of have to look at yourself and say, it, would it just be easier for us to rewrite this application? And there's some great stuff that you can use now, uh, nowadays. We use discovery tools in Accenture quite a bit that allow us to extract rules and logic from source code, and we can do it across 40, 50 different languages and use that as a great starting point. It actually can really accelerate development when you have scenarios like that. And frankly, that um, oftentimes, when we're if it's a core part of the business, um, and you're really trying to do you, you're trying to do something with it that will propel your your growth. Rewriting it can sometimes be sometimes not I would say often be the right answer. For other applications that are a bit more routine, you know, just doing the remediation on them and moving them uh, is is typically a better example. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I'm a good consultant, and I'll say it depends. Uh, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, We've, uh, you know, having done the number of applications that we have at this point, we've got a pretty good methodology that helps us figure out, you know, exactly what the right answer is uh, for different legacy applications about whether you remediate them, replace them, rewrite them, et cetera. Okay, anyone else? Awesome, you guys have been a great audience. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tani.